We're going to take a look just in chapter 19 at the end here of Acts. And uh, we're going to then get into chapter 20. And I'm going to have the guys and gals put up uh, the the map of the third missionary journey. Did it suddenly just get cooler in here or is it just me? I think it's the kids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sweating like I've been playing basketball. So uh, if you see... Uh, Anyway, I'm really sweating, but hey, one more day. Tomorrow morning they start uh, uh, putting these in right here. So God bless you guys for uh, toughing it out all this time. But we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, and we're going to take a look at what a church should look like. And what's funny about it is (laughs) the walls of the church were basically anywhere where they just lived. And we're, we're just going to look at what church should look like. But here's the cool part about this. Everybody reads, not everybody, but some people read the book of Acts and they, they put the people in the book of Acts like up here. Superheroes. Oh my goodness, superheroes. I could never do that. It's just a great book to read and attain to. I think the book of Acts is put in here so that everybody will know what normal is for the Christian who's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so I'm excited about today uh, because I think this gives us a big picture of what the church is. First, look at this. And oh, well, it's not going to help if I do Luke 19. It's probably going to help if I do Acts 19. And here at the end of uh, Acts, we talked about it. Paul is in Ephesus. Are we there? Yeah. Paul is in Ephesus. You see Ephesus down here and uh, it's an important city. That's where Paul is, and he's been going around. This is his third trip on his missionary journeys. And what happens is, as we talked about, uh, verse 23 of 19, there's a great commotion about the way, the Christians. And there's this guy named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made these shrines of Diana or Artemis. Same thing. Uh, Greeks call them one thing call her one thing, Romans call her another, same thing. And listen, the silver shrines, the little things that they were making, made the silversmiths big-time bucks. There was a whole industry around making these idols. And remember, at about this time, we have extra-biblical history that says that a meteorite, black chunk of rock came out of the sky and hit near Ephesus and they thought, oh, that's a sign from the gods that we're on the right track. And they made these ugly, uh, ugly statues or, of, of this Diana, this Artemis. And they thought it was a sign. But Demetrius and his buddies who are silversmiths start getting mad. He calls them together, verse 25, with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that of our prosperity, or we have our prosperity by this trade. It's okay, you do your religious stuff, but don't mess with our pocketbooks, the world says. You mess with our pocketbooks, and we're seeing that sort of in the news. Haven't we started seeing that sort of in the news? Even today. And he fights back. He wants to fight back with his workers or his fellow silversmiths. Moreover, 26, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Now, that's not all he was saying. He was preaching repentance and faith. Remember this? 
And so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the big temple. Remember, the temple of the great goddess of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. Did you know that? Of the ancient world. That's that. And they, when they heard this, they were full of wrath. And they cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion, rushed into the theater. If you went to Ephesus right now, you could see this theater. It's still there. I mean, it looks like one of those big Roman things, you know, half circle, whatever. You still, it's still there. People go there all the time. It's a big tourist attraction. But they run into the theater and uh, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, these travel companions of Paul. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple, the disciples wouldn't allow him. And then they were, they knew if he goes in there, he's toast. So some of the officials, some of the officials uh, 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 of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he doesn't go in there, wouldn't go into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them didn't know why they had come together. And they drew this guy named Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews, putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands like this. Everybody, hey, everybody, be quiet, be quiet. And wanted to make his defense, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. This mob was stirred up. You say, how could somebody yell and scream for two hours? Well, you just saw it here in Pittsburgh last Friday night. The world will scream for anything. Taylor Swift, two hours, probably three hours, maybe four hours. Whatever, I mean... People will do this sort of thing, right? If they're riled up. And when the city clerk, the he, so the clerk comes out, he quiets the crowd and he said, Hey, men of Ephesus, what men is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things can't be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for a today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now look, folks. Check out the map. Everything you see up there, and even more, is ruled by Rome. And we're in Ephesus, over here in Asia. And there's Greece, and Rome's over here. Italy's over here. And what this city clerk was saying was, oh, boys and girls here, men and women, quiet down. Because the Romans said this. They said, as long as you live your uh, culture and society in peace and don't cause a stir, fine. And also pay taxes. Fine. But if you get out of line, Ro Rome would come with an iron fist and put it down. And they knew how to put it down. They were ruthless. They would let you live until you got out of order. And here that's what's happening. But here I want you to see... The first great thing about the church. Remember, Paul and Ephesus had been dialoguing with the people in Ephesus. 
Now, dialogue is a word. Remember this from last week? It's a word where Paul would sit down with people. It was a little different than this, teaching in the church. Teaching in the church. The pastor is teaching and expounding the scriptures. But Paul would also, listen, he would take it to the streets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see, we... And and he would dialogue with people. And the dialogue means this. He would let people espouse their philosophies or their religions. That's what he would do. And then he would talk back when they would not talk back like the bad thing, but he would respond when he had his chance to respond about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He sat down with people constantly over and over all day long who didn't believe the same stuff he did. In fact, believed stuff that was evil and dark and he would sit down and he would take the time and he would discuss with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would proclaim to them the gospel in a dialogue. And I think one of the first things we learn about the church is that we're called to be out there, not just in here all the time. Of course, we're called to be here. The the local church, what a beautiful thing. We come in here, we worship the Lord, we get exhorted and built up. And and then, but what happens is, is you're going to leave here in a little bit. By the way, do you know there's lunch after? There's lunch after, stay for lunch. But we're going to leave here afterwards, and that's where the mission is. It's out there. Sometimes, watch we think that church success is getting a rock wall and a coffee shop and having cool things and pictures and images and Facebook and Instagram and making it look cool. And, and, and the early church wanted to proclaim the gospels out in the streets, out in the culture. And the way in which you know that you're on the right track, I think, is when you see you're impacting your community. You don't hide it under a bushel. That should be a kid's song. No, you don't do that. You don't hide your light on a hill. You put the light up there and you shine it for all to see so that people can you can dialogue with people. I would say this. I would say get out your pencil right now if the Holy Spirit is come into your life and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would say, write down the person that the Lord is putting on your heart who thinks something way different than you. And I would you know, pray about it, of course. But call them this week and invite them to lunch or coffee or do something. Get out, get into the streets and proclaim the good news. That's what this church is doing. Paul is doing it with his disciples. They're going out. They aren't just staying in. See, that takes, you know what it takes? It takes you and I and we being right dividers of the word. I just think that means being nimble in the word. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect. If somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to, you know what you say? I don't know about that. I'm going to think about that and pray about it and get back to you. But otherwise, you're nimble in the Word, and you don't have to know it perfectly, but you can give the gospel in clear clear ways, and you can give your testimony in clear ways. 
And you go and you share. And it comes by being in the Word and being a student of the Word. And so, what impact are you having in the community where you are? And hey, pray for us. We love this little community. And we're here in a little sliver of Pittsburgh that sort of Pittsburgh forgot. But we love it. We love the people here. And it's awesome. And we love being here. And we're going to be here as long as the Lord tells us to be here. This is great. But we want to impact the people and share the gospel with them. When we have Community Day in October, we go over here in the ball field and we basically put on a Christian festival, a gospel festival, and we invite the whole town. And generally, if it's good weather, and that's it's been bad sometimes, it's been good sometimes, we start off the festival by saying, we don't want to hide the ball from you. The reason we're doing this is because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and love you. And our heart is that you would have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, it can't get much more plain than that. But anyway, that's what a church is. It's taking it to the streets. Are we taking it to the streets? Each individually. Everywhere I look here, people go to a different job. I don't see one person in here who has the same job. Maybe maybe two. <laughs> maybe a couple. But everybody else goes somewhere different every day. And we can't be where you can be, and you can't be where I can be. So let's take the gospel, and then let's see a community change. Do you know this? I told you this. If you study the Welsh revival, Robert Murray McShane, anybody know that name? Robert Murray McShane did a lot of writing. He was part of the Welsh revival. Other people too. When you look at Wales in 1901 through 1904, guess what happened in Wales during the Welsh Revival. All the bars shut down. All the uh, houses of ill repute shut down. All, all things. And they were preaching the gospel. When you look at Charles Finney's life and his impact in Rochester, New York, did you know that there was a revival in Rochester, New York? And they went and 100,000 people were getting saved over a two- or three-year period in like that upper part of New York. And what happened again? The bars shut down. The houses of ill repute shut down. All these sorts of things started shutting down. Why? Because Holy Spirit-filled people were sharing the gospel, and when people get saved, what happens? They take their incantations, like we saw last time, and their books, and they turn from their idols, and they throw them away, and they get rid of them. And that was impacting and making the people at Ephesus really angry. Do we want to, until the Lord comes, make an impact? Wouldn't you say yes? We all pray for that, yes. Then we have to, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as He leads, take it to the streets. How many people do you know that think way different than you? How many people do you know that think way different you, if you invite into the church, say yes? Well, some do. The Lord brings them. But most need to be met where they are. You with me? Let's go. Right? Let's go. That's one big mark of the church. But watch this. 
after the uproar had ceased, chapter 20, verse 1. Good, we got this up. Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. He departed to go to Macedonia. You see where Macedonia is over there? It's Greece. Upper, Ma- upper Greece, lower Greece, Macedonia. See it over there? This is his third missionary journey. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, don't get mad with me if I take long. Look, Paul had many words. He came to Greece and he stayed three months. And this is the time most people believe that he penned Romans while he was in Greece for this three months. He wrote the book of Romans. Also something you should know as the backdrop for this chapter. In 1 Corinthians 16, we learn, remember Corinth, you can see it up there. But Paul now, see, he's over here. He's in these areas, Greece. In in 1 Corinthians 16, we learn that Paul had this Holy Spirit desire to collect money from the different churches that were Gentile, non-Jewish, who you know, had been established through his ministry and take it back to Jerusalem, gifts of money, financial, back to Jerusalem because there was a great famine and Jerusalem church was really hurting. And he thought it would be an amazing way to show solidarity, unity for the Gentile churches to give to the home church. So that's sort of the backdrop and that's sort of what he's thinking. And he gets to Greece and he stays there three months, writes the book of Romans, And when the Jews plotted against him, look at this. He's, look, he's over here in Macedonia. He's ready to sail. Look what it says. He's ready to sail uh, to Syria, to Antioch. He's going home. Remember, there was a big church in Antioch. Everybody stay with me now. I seriously have a point. And the first point here is, what do people do when their plans get changed. Here he is. Yeah, right. A lot of people get discouraged. A lot of people get upset. A lot of people get mad. Lord, come on. I want to go home. I got the money. We got traveling companions. We're all set up. The Lord says again to Paul, "Uh, sorry, you're not going there. He decided to return through Macedonia. So watch. You can see. You can see, he starts in Antioch, he goes to Ephesus, he goes over here, he goes down to Corinth, and now he's going to go back up towards Thessalonica and Philippi. That's what this means. And he's going through Macedonia, where he had already established churches. You could read about that in Acts 16 and 17. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus and Secondus of Asia. Or excuse me, of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Most people believe each one of those guys had a loot, had a bag full of money. And that's why they're going with him. Of course, Paul had friends too. He must have been a friendly guy because he had tons of friends. Paul, one of the most intellectual, theologically astute guys, tons of friends. He wasn't just a bookworm. But most people believe they had a bag of money. One really cool thing in here. I think you should know and love, and it, it's, it's a picture of what happens in the church. There's these two guys right here that came from Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus. 
Aristarchus is a name. It's sort of a aristocratic name, a high society name. And Secundus, what is that all about? Well, listen, there were a lot of slaves in Thessalonica and in the ancient world. And your first house slave was named Primus. Even I can do that, one. And then the next in line would be called Secundus, second, which tells you something about the early church. They were brothers, sisters in Christ, and it didn't matter where their socioeconomic level was. You get it? Oh, this is beautiful. And it tells you something else. I don't want to... uh, uh, break the, uh, or, or let the cat out of the bag, but look over in verse 35. We learn through Luke, the writer of Acts, that Jesus says, it's, you ever, you've quoted this all your life. You've thought it was in the Gospels. It's not in the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. It's a quote from Jesus says that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul was a giver. Now listen, I have a definition of grace that I've been putting up there a million times. And the definition of grace comes down to this. I mean, I won't read it to you for the 20th time. It just It's this. It's that we serve a giving God. And when the Lord comes into your heart, listen to this, you become a giver. A giver of your life. A giver of your time. A giver of your talents. A giver of your... Uh, your intellect, a give, uh, giver of your plans to the Lord. Everything, you're a giver. And these guys were. They, they wanted to go with Paul and, and, and deliver this to a church where they'd never been. And these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. There it is again. Luke says us here. Why does Luke say us? Because earlier in the book of Acts, I know I'm, I'm jumping around. Earlier in the book of Acts, Paul left Luke at Philippi. Now he's back at Philippi. They pick up Luke. Luke starts writing, says us again. He's on this trip. Well, they sail away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. If you're a biblical scholar, you know this. You could call this one festival of the Jews three different things, I think. Well, two different things. Well, three. We'll say three. You could call it the Passover. You could call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you could call it the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Why? Because Passover was a one-day feast with a seven-day feast behind it called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and sometimes in the Bible it's encompassing them all. Paul wanted to get that gift back to Jerusalem by the day of Passover. But guess what, folks? Who here hates to be disappointed? Well, here it comes again. He shuts down the plans and he says, the Holy Spirit does not allow Paul to get to Jerusalem by that time and look how Paul reacts like a crybaby. No, he does not. He's flexible. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, blessed are the flexible. And oh, is he right? Blessed are the flexible. Be careful of setting expectations and being your own God. God will direct you when God wants to direct you. You get it? And where he directs you. And Paul knew it. 
Anyway, they sail, and in five days, they joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, on the first day of the week, I love this. This is one of my great topics. I love it. (laughs) Well, you know, Pastor, you shouldn't really watch football when you get home from service on Sunday. I'm like, oh, really? We're in trouble then. Because you need to keep the Sabbath. Which always makes me laugh. Because Sunday ain't the Sabbath, folks. Friday night to Saturday night is the Sabbath. According to the Jewish system. Sunday ain't the Sabbath. It's just the day, what? It's the day... Now watch that some people say, oh, you Christians, you shouldn't be worshiping on Sunday. Constantine, the Roman emperor in the 300s, he made that the day of worship. And oh, beside, Sunday, it's as if you're worshiping the sun. You got to think a little bit. Why in the world does it mention here Before, look, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. I, do you guys know this is way before Constantine? (laughs) This is in the 50s AD, not 300s AD. In other words, the early church, and there's other examples in the Bible, they worshiped on the first day of the week because it was the day that the Lord rose. And you know this, don't you? I just want you to see this. Do you know this in Romans? Romans 14, real quick. It says this, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. He over there, he wants to worship on Saturday. Wonderful. Another esteems every day alike. He over there or she over there. eh, Let's worship Sunday. Hey, guess what? On Monday, let's worship then too. Tuesday, let's worship. And if you go into Colossians, it says Paul himself, who kept a lot of these festivals and things. Paul himself says, don't worry about the feasts or the Sabbaths. If that's going to jam you up, don't worry about that. Here's the thing. If you want to worship on a certain day, say you want to worship on Saturday, you're a Seventh-day Adventist, and you want to worship on Saturday. Praise the Lord. You worship on Saturday. The problem becomes is when people put trips on other people about when to worship. Because here the Bible tells us that the Sabbath was for what? It was for rest. It was a covenant made with Israel. The Sabbath was for rest. And we have now the real thing. Jesus is our rest. You can worship in Sabbath any day, any time. And here, the disciples on the first day of the week come together to break bread. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued until midnight. Let's go, Paul. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window, isn't this great that we're here on the last day of no air conditioning? And in a window sat a certain young man whose name meant fortunate. Isn't that funny? Eutychus means fortunate. 
And Eutychus goes to the back. He's sinking into a deep sleep and he's overcome. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story, was taken up dead. But listen, don't you sort of wonder about this? But Paul goes down, fell on him. What's that remind you of? Folks, what's it remind you of? Second Kings chapter four, Elisha and the Shunammite woman, when her son became dead, who she prayed for all his life, Elisha laid on the kid and the body started to become warm and he came back to life. Well, here Paul lays down, watch this. And he says, don't trouble yourself for his life is in him. You know why I think Paul can say that? I think he has the gift of the supernatural gift of faith right there. You, everybody has faith when you're saved, but sometimes you need the gift of faith. And I think Paul's exercising it right here. And he exercises it and says, don't trouble yourself. His life is in him. Now, when he had come up, he'd broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Notice what they did on the first day of the week as part of their church services, their gatherings. Look, they ate together. They had love feasts, sort of like what we're going to do today, but I don't know that we're calling them love feasts, but whatever. They are love feasts. They come together, potluck, whatever. They're bringing food, and they eat together. And then what would they do? At the end, they would take communion. Right? And that's what's happening here. And Paul, I want you to see this. Paul is instituting this at the different churches that he goes to. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted, meaning they were comforted. Then they go to the ship and sail to Asos. Look, watch this. You see right there, they're leaving from Troas to Asos, and they got to sort of go around the Cape, and I want you to see this. The traveling companions went on a 20-mile journey on a ship, but Paul walked. Number of different theories. They were concerned for his safety. They thought somebody was going to hijack or pirate type thing because people were mad at Paul. Another thing is it was dangerous, didn't want him to shipwreck. But here's something I think. I think Paul wanted to be alone with the Lord. He tells him right here, you guys go ahead. I'm going to go on foot. I'm going to walk. He walked about 20 miles. I, I don't know about you, but isn't there sometimes you just need to get alone with the Lord? You a mom in here and you've had little ones and you're like, can I just go for a walk and be with the Lord and walk with him and talk with him? And yeah, of course, right? We're to watch and pray. And sometimes when we get on our knees to pray, we keel over because we got up too early and worked too hard or something. Here he says, I want to walk. And I think that's something that Paul wants to do. Now that's going to come into play here in a minute. And when he was at this place, as so as he took... Well, we took him on board and we came to Mytilene. Look where they go to. See it? They're going over here to the different um, islands. And they sailed from there and came opposite Chios. And then the following day, we arrived at Samos and at Tregillium. And the next day, we came to Miletus. You see where he is? For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus... So they wouldn't have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. He said, oh, wow, okay, my plans are disrupted. Time out. Man, I know it's hot. You guys are looking at me like, come on. Well, this is important, man. You know people get their whole world crushed 
because things don't go as planned. There is a great thing to be a planner. Fantastic. I'm not one. It brings hives to me. But you should be a planner. But if you are a planner to the place where when God changes your plans, you can't function, you better watch it. You're idolizing the plans and you and all the things that you can get done. Be careful. Should I be more of a planner? Yes. But watch it, planners. Here, Paul just says, okay, no Passover, we'll go to Pentecost. He's okay with that. That's another thing that the church does. They're guided by the Holy Spirit. They do plan, but when the Spirit leads, they do it. And from Miletus, he sends to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, wake up right here. Look, he's at Miletus, and he calls to Ephesus. It's 30, 40 miles. And I want you to see something. He, when you called for the elders at Ephesus, you didn't do this. There's no phones. And you didn't text anything, and you probably didn't send a letter, although maybe a letter, but the letter had to be ran up there or walked up there. You get it? People were serving in little Miletus for the glory of the kingdom by walking things to the elders at Ephesus. Now watch, on the flip of that, the people at Ephesus who were leaders, pastors, teachers, elders, leaders of the church, here's what they could have said. You're bringing me this? Paul wants me to come down there? How dare him? He should come up here. We're the leaders of the church. Oh, and by the way, I'm building a house. I can't go now. I'm, I've got baseball practice for my kids. No way. I mean, my kid's prom is next Friday. You think I'm walking to Ephesus or to Miletus from Ephesus? No. And I want you to see something for people who serve. You, this is really important. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. God establishes a principle for people who serve. Deuteronomy chapter 20. My Bible says this. Principles concerning warfare. Everybody stay with me. This is what the early or what the church should look like. For those who are servants, who here calls themselves a servant? Okay. Or do you call yourself a volunteer? You're going to see the difference between a volunteer right now and a servant. Ready? Principles for warfare right here in Deuteronomy 20. When you go out to battle, verse 1, against your enemies, isn't that what we're doing, sort of? When we go to proclaim the gospel, when we're serving the people, there's a war for your life and your family's life. And if you're saved already and your family's saved, well, they can't take that away, but they want to destroy your witness, the enemies of our soul. You get this? So when you read this, think of that. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, don't be afraid for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today or you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Don't let your heart be faint. Don't be afraid. Don't tremble or be terrified, for the Lord your God is with you. And most of us stop reading right there. And you can't leave now. I just got somebody walking out the door. <laughs> Watch this. Is this bizarre or what? 
Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house. In other words, he's not going to be in the battle. You're so preoccupied with your material possessions, if you can't give them up, you're not in the battle. Oh, okay. How about this? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? I like my wine, man. I ain't... Anyway. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who's betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. Now, the point isn't you can't get married there. The point is this. People who are spirit-filled, watch, listen, are one-string guitars. And if we're in the battle, and we are, folks, just go turn on MSNBC, CNN, go turn on Fox, just watch for about 1.5 seconds, and the battle just goes right in your face. It's here. We are in a war. And if you are to participate in the war, look what the Lord wants you to be, undistracted. It doesn't mean you can't have a house. It doesn't mean you can't have a wife or a husband. It doesn't mean you can't have this or you can't have that. But if you are saying, I can't serve because of those things, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. Then you become a volunteer. You're just telling people when you can serve and what you can do. Get it? It's a different deal. See, the life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice. And that's what it is. And here Paul says, you know, he's coming to these places and he's being flexible and he's serving and he knows that the elders in Ephesus, look, said, okay, we'll lay down those things because this is really important and we'll walk towards you. Interesting for me. People are flexible. People are servants. That's what the Ephesus elders were like. Well, they called for them, and when they'd come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia, when you get to some place first, listen, whether it be a job or a school or somewhere, If you want to have problems in the future, live on the fence about your Christianity. One foot in, one foot out. If you don't want to have problems in terms of having to explain it later, establish it on the first day. Establish it on the first day. And here, Paul, on the first day, I came to Asia. I always lived among you. Listen to this. Here was the key to Paul's ministry, I'm convinced other than the Holy Spirit. He served the Lord and not people, uh, men, like didn't care what they thought. He, he served the people, of course, but he was doing it for the Lord. That's important. That's what the church does. If you're serving here and you're getting angry and bitter because nobody's helping, stop doing it. Leave. I mean, not don't leave the church, but leave the ministry there. Just put it down because you're not serving the right way. You're serving for yourself, not for the Lord. If you know you're serving for the Lord, you keep going with all humility, being teachable, with many tears and trials, working hard. Look, they worked hard, which happened to me by the plotting 
of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. There's no hint of jealousy with Paul. Are you catch that? If you go to a pastor's conference, you come along with me. Sit down at the lunch table. I tell you this story all the time. It's hysterical. It's coming. It's coming. Here it comes. Oh, where are you from? Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. And here it comes. 99.9% of the time, here it comes. Oh, how many people you have in your church? What? We're not doing it for that reason. Should a healthy church grow? Sure. But that's not the reason we're doing it. With humility, we're not jealous, keep back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Are you catching that? The disciples of Christ that were ministering with Paul, you catch this? In all the towns, they didn't just ask them to come here, they went there to their houses. Now I know it's talking about a house church. I get that too. But it's also talking about going and dialoguing with people at their homes in hospitality. You getting that? Invite people to to lunch. Invite people to dinner. So they do it. And they uh, go to house to house. They testify to the Jews and the Greeks. And what do they testify? Repentance toward God and faith. Repentance. Turning and moving towards God. And trusting the Lord. It's like hand and glove. And see how I now... I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. (laughs) Wake up right here, Eutychus. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. Well, Lord, uh, who am I going to, what, what year will I be in college and what do I do now and who will I marry and where will I work and blah, 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 blah. The Lord is saying to Paul and his team, we had no idea when we were going to go. And oh, by the way, we know through the Holy Spirit, though, when we get there, there's going to be prison chains and tribulations. And I want you to see something, folks. Here, I'm going to get in a little trouble. You ever heard of the power of positive thinking? You ever heard of positive confession stuff? If you say it enough, it'll happen. Somebody should have told Paul about this new thing that people now are saying. He wasn't a guy of positive confession. He was a guy that showed up as a servant of the Lord and went, whatever you want, Lord, that's what I'll do. He wasn't, I need a Lexus and I need a great watch and a massive jewelry and some suits and a big house. And if you don't give it to me, we're out of here. That's not what Paul was like. You turn on TV a lot. That's what everybody's saying. You're like, where is this coming from? That wasn't Paul. Paul says, we knew we were going to go someday. And what was waiting us was prison and chains and tribulations. And we were happy to do it. Why? Because he was serving the Lord and getting the gospel out. That's what was most important. But none of these things move me. Do you catch this? None of them. Do I, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. I just want you to know something. When you resolve this issue via the gospel, you become free. And what's the issue? The issue is 
if I die, I'm with the Lord. (laughs) If I live, praise the Lord. I can go share the gospel. If you resolve that issue, there's going to be peace all over your life. He's going to give it to you because that's what Paul says. I don't care about any of those things because my life is not dear to myself because I'm going to finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want you to see something. Paul, Paul would die for the gospel. He would die for the gospel. He believed the gospel was something worth dying for. Are you getting this? You know how sometimes we tell people when we're witnessing to them, oh, come, and you know, everything is going to be great. And you're... Paul didn't speak of that sort of thing. He just told you the truth. He said, when you catch the grace of God, listen, when you understand the grace of God and what God has done for your life, your life will no longer be dear to you. I mean, yeah, you're not going to be putting yourself in un- irresponsible situations, nothing like that. But you're going to lay it all out for the Lord. That's amazing. He would die for the gospel. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I te- he knew he was going to die, folks. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. What does he mean? He means he has a good conscience because he did what Christ had asked. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You're saying you're trying to do it in one day today, and it's hot. But, you know, that's what we're called to do, folks. Not give you, as my friend just talked about this week over here, we're not trying to give you sermonettes to make you Christianettes. We're trying to take you through the whole counsel of God so you'll know it all and you'll be healthy sheep. You'll be healthy sheep who go and reproduces healthy sheep. And it comes through the Word of God. And here, Paul said, I'm innocent because I declared to you the whole counsel. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, this is the portion. Watch. Healthy church. They meet people out on the streets. They dialogue. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're generous. They're flexible. They don't move too far ahead of the Holy Spirit or lag too far behind. They go where the Holy Spirit indicates to them. But here's another one. You ever think about this? He calls these elders and he's giving them the... This is the only pastor's conference in the Bible. Here's a pastor's conference. He calls the pastors from Ephesus, big town, key city, and he says, this is what I want you to concentrate on even as you pour out your life. Watch this, that you're to take heed to yourselves. You know what the most important thing that a leader in the church can be doing is their daily devotions. Spending time with the Lord, walking and talking with the Lord, and taking heed to yourselves so that you're alert when you're with and around and thinking of the flock, the people that the Lord has given you to lead, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And we're called to shepherd the church of God. Watch. Watch watch what a shepherd does. A shepherd, when one goes astray, goes and gets them, which sometimes means that the pastor or the leaders of the church have to reach out to you and say, listen, 
that path you're going down is not right. And you're going to get a broken leg or you're going to die or you're going to get injured out there. Come with the staff and come back. And I'm not talking in some weird shepherding way. I'm saying that's what a shepherd does. What else does a shepherd do? They feed, make sure they're together, feed the flock. We're doing that through the word. What else does a shepherd do? He looks for wolves and predators. And you say, well, you know, you've got to really be careful from the pulpit, from naming names and telling tales about other people in Christendom. Yeah, that's true. But when there's false prophets out there, you have to warn people about that. And that's not being showy or anything. That's being a shepherd. Shepherd isn't just putting on a nice face and being smiley and fun. It's about protecting and warning and feeding and overseeing and finding and bringing back. And sometimes what would the shepherds do? Not that we do this, but they would break the leg of the sheep or the lamb so that it wouldn't wander off. And I don't mean, you know, nobody's going to throw you in the river or anything. But sometimes, you know what you got to do is you got to tell the truth to people. Not sometimes, all the time, but sometimes the truth hurts. But it has to be said. Okay, that's what shepherds do. And he's giving them this, be shepherds. And he, look, the church of God, this building was purchased by cash. Most of your homes were purchased by either a mortgage, which involves cash. You purchase things with money or bartering. But the church, which I read to you from Dustin Bang's book, was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to just think about that. There's the verse. Can you see then how valuable the church is locally to the Father? That it was bought through His Son? Oh my. Think of that. That the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Do you catch this? There's not going to just be people from the outside coming in to disrupt the church. There's going to be people in the church with their own agendas. If you have your own agenda, listen to me, stop. Here's the agenda here. Loving God and loving others. And there's no other agenda. It's not ministry agendas. It's not elevating self agendas. It's not divisive stuff. It's not this new wave of theology that you want to introduce to the congregation. No. It's loving people and, or loving God and loving people. That's the agenda. And serving Him. There it is. So stop. Don't. Also, from among yourselves, men rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, what are we to do? Watch and remember that on that for three years I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Uh, so here, what are we supposed to do? We're to take heed to ourselves. We're to lead with integrity. Keep an eye on ourselves to make sure there is integrity in the way we're leading and guiding. Sometimes we have to speak. There has to be spoken hard truths to people. Bring them back. 
love them, feed them. That's what the leaders of a church do. Warn people about false doctrine and false teaching. So now, brethren, 32, I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is to build you up. You, you, you guys, somebody of you feel like you're in the dust. You ever felt like that? Well, praise the Lord, because when you're weak, he is strong. He can work through you. But he says the way in which you get built up in the inner person is through the word of God. I didn't say it. He said it. There's no substitute. You can seek for all the experiences you want. Experiences are good. I like experiences, but that's not what to base your life on. Base your life on the word of God's grace, and he'll build you up. And there's so many other things that he tells us that he'll allow, uh, allow us to do or work in and through us through grace, his grace. Watch this real quick. To be obedient, stand in hardships, give thanks, strengthen us, Deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and serve God. All scriptures in the Bible that say comes through the grace of God. Finally, watch this. Paul says, listen, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. What's the signal of a healthy church? Listen. It looks for those who are marginalized and oppressed and serves them and loves them and props them up and brings them in and helps them. That's the sign of a great church, a healthy church. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I told the VBS people this. Watch. I'd never heard Chuck Smith say this before. I've listened to a lot of his tapes. And he told a story on this verse that really got me. And I was like, wow, that should be in the distinctives. And I don't think it's in the distinctives. And he tells of a time Maranatha music originated at Calvary Chapel. That was the early 70s music at Maranatha. And they, you know, all the legalities. And they were having a conference where a publishing company was coming to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, to put on a conference for Maranatha music. And after, as the um, week was going on, the leader of the publishing company came to Chuck Smith and said, I don't know what it is about you people, but we were coming here to sell to you. And we got here and you and your servants have given and blessed and propped us up. And we were the ones that were trying to sell to you. And Chuck's, Pastor Chuck says this, they hit upon something that hopefully is a distinctive of a good church And hopefully that is happening at Calvary Chapel. And that's this, that people are generous and giving. And you say, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Well, I'm going to tell you something. If you were here last week, (laughs) we have 50 kids or 45 kids, whatever it is, come to this thing. And you have 65 volunteers in this hot, humid church that every night from 530 to 9 or 930, people who have jobs were coming here to bless kids. And what I saw, and I didn't do much, I stood out on the street and just said hi to people. What I saw was people full of grace, overflowing, giving out to kids and families. And I was like, it's better to give than to receive. There it is. And that's the mark of a healthy church, hopefully. It's us. And when he had said these things, he knelt down. Did you notice this? 
he got down on his knees and prayed with them all, and they wept freely and fell on his neck and kissed him. Why? They knew. Sorrowing most all for the words which he spoke, and they would see his face no more. They knew he was going to be killed. They didn't know how. They didn't know in what way. But he had mentioned to them that he was going to be in chains and killed, and you're going to start to see that come to fruition at the end of this. And they accompanied him to the ship. I'm going to put up three quotes right here. And we're going to end on this. What's the sign of a healthy church? Here are three quotes. Listen to this. It takes more than a busy church, a friendly church, or even an evangelical church to impact a community for Christ. You guys, raise your hand if you want to impact a community for Christ. Raise your hand. It must be a church ablaze, full of the Holy Spirit, in other words. Watch. Led by leaders who are ablaze for God. Isn't that amazing? You know what the Bible says in Timothy? Pray for those who are in leadership uh, 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 positions. Keep going. Next one. In proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. We give up our idols. We pursue the holiness of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews to pursue holiness without and peace without which it's impossible to see God. Keep going. That's from Spurgeon. Watch this. The Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and st- sink into stagnancy and corruption. We can never thank God enough for giving us not only a whole gospel to believe, watch, but a whole world to give it to. Wow. Three quotes that I thought was apropos. Folks, last chapter, it said that there were people in the city that God knew Paul was going to talk to and there was going to be salvation for people right at the current time that Paul was there. I believe right now in West Elizabeth and Elizabeth and West Mifflin and Peters and Bethel Park and South Park, there are people right now and all around the city of Pittsburgh, there are people right now that God is looking for people to go talk to. And I just pray in our own little way, we would get out of our comfort zone and our suburban lives and share and love with a dark and hurting world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here uh, this morning and we thank you for this word. Lord, help us to be, help us to be, uh, people who take heed of ourselves, that we walk with you and talk with you and receive from you. And help us to be people that put away our idols. If there are some people here now that the Lord's speaking to, we pray that they would give those up and we would give those up. And we pray, Lord, that you'd set our leaders ablaze and our people ablaze as you fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be a church like this, not in some um, way in which we point, our, uh, point uh, fingers at ourselves, but that all that we do and all that we say, we point to you and give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.